We are in the second Sunday of a conspiracy. And if you want to know how to join in, the video just said uh, we were encouraging people to reclaim Christmas uh, by worshiping fully, by spending less and taking the money that you would have spent on gifts that they may have returned anyway, and giving more to mission causes right here in our city and around the world, like we heard about the Pulse this morning, and finally, to reflecting God's love by loving all people unconditionally. And we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we look like God uh, when we love people the way God loves people. So I'm glad you're here. I hope you're joining in to being part of the conspiracy. Last week we talked about the idea of worshiping fully. And whether you are aware of it or not, every human being was designed to worship something. And you may say, well, wait a minute, Gary, because I'm not a churchgoer. I'm not somebody who goes to church regularly. I'm just here today because it's Christmas or somebody guilted or shamed me or blackmailed me into being here. But you need to know this. I didn't say you were, you were created uh, to go to church. And I didn't say that you were created to be religious. But you were created for a purpose, and that was to worship. And in fact, everyone will worship something. The question is, are you aware of what it is that you are worshiping? And are you actively choosing what it is that you will worship? This battle, there's been an epic battle going on for the heart and the soul of humanity since the dawn of creation. This battle, we're going to talk about it today, this clash of kingdoms between what we're going to call the kingdoms of the empire and the kingdom of our Lord. And you can see it in the Old Testament. You can look back into the Exodus story and you can see it played out in the life of Pharaoh as he oppressed the people of God and ultimately God would raise up a deliverer and the children of Israel would be uh, redeemed and set free from bondage to slavery uh, to Pharaoh. And then you see it played out again in, in the rest of the Old Testament. Stories like Esther and King Artaxerxes. And you see it with Daniel and all the kings of the captivity, the Babylonian captivity. And you see it with people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and King Nebuchadnezzar. It's played out over and over again, this battle for the heart of and the minds of people this battle between the kingdoms of the empire and the kingdom of our lord and we see it played out even in the pages of the new testament especially in the pages of the gospel in the story of jesus and we're going to look at the battle today as it was represented and displayed through the relationship between two very unlikely people in the gospels One was a peasant Jewish carpenter who lived in a backwoods part of Galilee that nobody would even know of if it had not been for the fact that he came from there. His name is Jesus. And the other is a powerful and mighty king who had the authority of the greatest empire the world had ever known. Rome was behind him and his name was Herod the Great. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And if you're somebody who loves a sermon with a lot of scripture... You're going to love today's sermon. We're going we're gonna to practice some Bible drill and you, we're going to look around because we're going to look at the relationship between King Herod and Jesus throughout the pages of the gospel. And if you're somebody who, who just dreads being asked to find passages in the Bible, uh, I've got good news for you. We're going to put it all on the screen. But, but whether or not you follow in the pages or on the screen, I do hope you'll follow along because I think this epic battle that we see played out between Jesus and Herod is one that we still face today. So maybe you'll want to take some notes on the back of the bulletin, and maybe by now you've had, to find, uh, had time to find Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at this relationship between Herod and Jesus, and the first thing we have to ask ourselves is this, who is Herod? 
Well, Herod is certainly a historic figure. You can read about him in extra-biblical texts. He was someone who existed and lived and ruled in Palestine in the first century. But he's more than that in this story. Herod represents the empires of this world. What do I mean by the empires of this world? Well, I mean a system. A system that you and I are very familiar with. It's sometimes it's represented in politics. Sometimes it's represented in economics. Sometimes it's represented even in religion. But it is a system that exists in this world that seems to trap people and capture people. And it demands their allegiance above any and all other things. You can see it in the news on a daily basis. The kingdoms of the empire. They're not always overtly evil. Sometimes, sometimes they're sneaky about it. They're not always intentionally bad. Sometimes they are though. The kingdoms of the empire, and Herod represents this kingdom. So if you've got a Bible, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now it's important to know that Herod was not a rightful king. Herod wasn't even really Jewish, but he was the king of the Jews. He had really purchased this title from Rome. He had acquired some, uh, some power, some prestige, had some money, and he was able to basically buy his way to, this, to be the king of this part of the world. He used all the influence and all the resources he had to amass and retain power. So Herod is the king. While meanwhile, Jesus, whose mother and father are refugees, are forced by, by the Roman Empire to make their way to Bethlehem to be taxed. And so this is, this is the setting for our story. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Notice they said, born king of the Jews. For we saw his star, it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. Now it's important to understand that Herod was an extremely insecure king. Because he knew that he wasn't the rightful king. He was also aware that there had been prophecies of a true king who would come. Who would deliver the people of Israel. Much like God had used Moses years before. Only more than just political deliverance. That this was going to be some, some epic deliverance. Deliverance from sin. This was going to be the Messiah who was come. He'd heard those prophecies. And as one who was so insecure that he would have his own children killed when he suspected they were trying to take his throne. That he'd have wives killed. That he had his mother-in-law killed. That he had siblings killed. He would stop at nothing to make sure he could hold on to this throne that he had worked so hard to achieve. So then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. But we all know that wasn't ever Herod's intention. But like many people who rise to power in the kingdom of the empire, he will do and say anything to get and maintain the power that he believes is his. So after listening to the king, they, the wise men, went on their way. And behold, the star that they, had, that, that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So what was Herod's reaction to Jesus? Herod's, all Herod's reaction to Jesus are the same. They're threatened by Jesus and they seek ways to eliminate that threat. It's exactly what King Herod did. He issued a decree and he sent soldiers into Bethlehem. And he had every male child under the age of two killed because he was determined to overcome the kingdoms of the Lord and to maintain his hold of the kingdom of the empire. But Herod would eventually die. Mary and Joseph had fled to Egypt. Joseph had been warned in a dream to take the baby and to take his mother and to get out of town because Herod was coming. So they had gone down to Egypt and they spent some time in Egypt. But eventually Herod died and so Joseph was told he could go back uh, to take the child back. And they went back and they moved to Galilee. So if you've ever wondered why you hear Jesus called Jesus of Nazareth instead of Jesus of Bethlehem, it's because Bethlehem was just the place where Jesus was born. But in fact, Jesus was from Galilee. That's where Joseph and Mary had lived before they were forced to go back to Bethlehem to pay the taxes. So they took the child and they went back. But there's always another Herod waiting in the wings. Because after King Herod died, he divided his kingdom up between his three sons. And another Herod, Herod Antipas, ruled in the region of Galilee where Jesus would live and where he would grow up. This Herod was so much like his father that when he saw something he wanted, even his sister-in-law, he went and took his sister-in-law from his brother to make her his wife. Well, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was a very famous prophet in this region. And so John the Baptist began to preach out against Herod and this woman and their adulterous relationship. And it didn't go over too well, these things that John the Baptist was saying. So Herod Antipas had John the Baptist beheaded. And then, and then Herod Antipas began to hear rumors of somebody who began to amass a following and people were following him around and he was doing miraculous signs and wonders and he, like his father, had heard about these prophecies that had been foretold. And so we read this in Luke chapter 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all the things that were happening, all the things that Jesus was doing, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John the Baptist had risen from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Herod Antipas wanted to know, who is this man? What kind of power does he have? What kind of threat does he pose to the power that I hold? So Herod Antipas, much like his father, set out to kill Jesus. We know this from Luke chapter 13, verse 31. And this is what it says, and at that very hour, some Pharisees came to Jesus, came to him and said, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. See, adult Jesus made Herod Antipas just as uncomfortable as baby Jesus had made his father. And you have to ask yourself a question. Why would these two kings, these powerful kings who had the backing of Rome, who had the military of Rome at their disposal, why would they be so intimidated by a peasant Jewish carpenter from a town that nobody had ever even heard of? 
Why would they give him so much attention and why would they seek to find him? Because they understood something. They understood that he posed a threat. He posed a threat to all that they held on to. So how did Jesus respond to Herod? We see a couple encounters where Jesus responds directly to Herod. The first thing we find out is that Jesus acknowledges Herod. Jesus understood the power structure. He understood the political structure. And he understood that he, as a citizen of this part of the world, was under the authority of Herod. Look what it says when Jesus was confronted by these Pharisees warning him that Herod was out to kill him. Verse 32 of Luke chapter 13. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform curses today and tomorrow and the third day. I finish my course nevertheless. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the third following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. See, Jesus acknowledges that Herod exists, that Herod is tricky, that Herod is deceptive. When he called him a fox, he wasn't saying that he was good looking. He was saying that he is sly and that you should watch out for this guy. He also understood that Herod would play an important part in his conviction and ultimately his execution. Jesus acknowledged Herod, but he did something else. He also ignored him. He was not going to be detoured from the mission that God had given him in the world. Herod is a reality, but I've been given a mission by my father and I will see that accomplished. We see Jesus ignore Herod again later on in Luke chapter 23. Now, you might remember when Jesus is finally arrested and he's brought before the Roman official whose name was Pontius Pilate. And and Pilate, like many good politicians, was looking for a way to get out of this politically difficult situation. And so Pilate, when he learned that Jesus was from Galilee, knew that Herod Antipas was the king over Galilee, sent Jesus out of his room over to King Herod to stand trial. And so Jesus went to see Herod. And remember, Herod had wanted to see Jesus. His dad before him had wanted to see Jesus. And finally, the encounter happens. Luke chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Here's what it said. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. Because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see see signs done by him. So he questioned him at some length. But look at Jesus' response. But he made no answer. Jesus gave Herod no reply, which must have aggravated Herod. It angered Herod. And ultimately, Herod would send Jesus back to Pontius Pilate. And we all know what would happen. Pilate would wash his hands of the whole affair. The crowd would cry, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. And Jesus would be crucified. And it looks in that moment as if the kingdom of the empire has finally accomplished its goal and defeated the kingdom of our Lord. You may be asking yourself, well, how does this relate to spending less? How does this relate to the Advent conspiracy? And how does this relate to my life here and now? Well, let me just share a couple thoughts with you from this encounter between Jesus and Herod that I think are important for us as Christians, especially at Christmas time, to remember. First of this, that the spirit of Herod is still alive and threatened by the presence of Christ. The spirit of Herod still rules many parts of our world. You can see it maybe especially in our culture in the month of December. In the month of December where you have 
in stark contrast, this call to worship this humble king who's been given for the sins of the world and this call of commercialism and consumerism to buy more, buy more, buy more. And you see all across our country, great houses of worship, temples where hundreds and thousands of people will go daily to worship their God who says, buy now, pay later. 12 months, interest-free. But we all know what it is, don't we? It's a trap. It's bondage. And do you know that today, for the first time since the Great Depression, Americans actually have a negative savings rate for the first time since the Great Depression? Statistics say that 60% of us, 60% of us are in serious credit card debt. The kingdom of the empire is still alive. And Herod is still at work, threatening the presence of all that is represented by Jesus and his followers. But there's something else. The spirit of Herod is still deceptive and seeks to kill the things of Christ. You see, Herod will pretend to worship Jesus as long as it is politically and financially expedient to do so. Herod has no problem with Jesus as long as Jesus will bend the knee to him. But ultimately, ultimately and finally, there can only be and there will only be one king. One king. And so Herod, Herod Antipas, had finally achieved what no control, what no ruler of the empire had been able to accomplish before him. Herod finally saw God himself who had condescended and come and taken on flesh, who had humbled himself and come to live as a man and put himself under the authority of the rulers of the empire. This humble king, he had finally seen Jesus captured, stripped, beaten, humiliated, crucified, dead, and laid in a borrowed tomb because he was so poor he couldn't even afford to buy one of his own. And the empire looked like it had won. It had finally dethroned God. It had finally killed God. And it had finally set itself up as the sole and only thing that mankind could worship. And the party lasted for about three days. But on the third day, early in the morning, the stone was rolled away. And the tomb was empty. And Jesus is alive. And 2,000 years later, Christians, hundreds and thousands and millions of Christians, down through the ages and all across the globe, proclaim that this peasant Jewish carpenter, who nobody should have known, is king of kings and lord of lords. And Herod is lucky if he gets a footnote in your high school students' history books. Because the kingdoms of our world, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. And Jesus reigns. And Jesus has become king. And the battle is over. And Herod has lost. And the empire has been defeated. And it's what we gather and it's what we celebrate and it's why we worship. But there's still a question that remains. Who will reign on the throne of your heart? What kingdom will define you? What kingdom will define 
your family? What kingdom will define our church? What kingdom will define our community? Will it be the kingdom of Herod and consumerism? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting anything bad. I like to shop. I mean, we live in a world much like Jesus lived in the reality of the world. He, he bought things. He, he went to market. He participated in the economy. I'm not saying that's bad or negative. I'm just saying, like Jesus, we need to be aware of what's going on beneath the surface, that there's an epic battle taking place for the heart and soul of men and women, boys and girls, and there is no time where it is more obvious than at Christmas time when Americans, on average, We'll spend more than five hours shopping online and in stores and less than one hour in spiritual worship and disciplines. Who will reign in your heart? What kingdom will define you? The kingdom of the empire or the kingdom of our Lord? And if you don't know, if you're not sure, let me give you just a couple questions to consider, a couple things to think about. First of all, this, will you spend more time shopping in stores or online than you will worshiping at the feet of Jesus, whom we say is the reason for the season? The way you spend your time tells a lot about the condition of your heart. If that one's not uncomfortable enough, let me ask you a second question. Will you spend more on gifts for people who can afford to take a vacation than you will giving to the least of these? Ooh, there was a sigh on that one. See, the wise men who made their way into Jerusalem had a choice to make. They had gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these were precious and valuable gifts. They don't make a lot of sense to us today in our economy, and our culture, but they were precious gifts. They came and they were confronted. They were called before Herod the king, but they didn't give him their gifts. Instead, they took their, king, their gifts and they went and they found this young refugee couple and they laid their gifts before the king of kings who had been laid in a feeding trough in a barn. And Jesus said... When you do for the least of these, you have done it unto me. Jesus said, if you give your gifts to people who can return your gifts, you have received your reward. So let me ask you, are you going to spend more money on Christmas gifts this Christmas for people who can afford to take a vacation than you are for the least of these? Whose birthday are we celebrating? What are we doing? Are we giving our allegiance to the kingdom of the empire or the kingdom of our Lord. And listen to me. It's, it's easy to be impressed by Herod. He's an impressive guy. Everything he builds is bigger. It's faster. It's better. It's shinier. It's newer technology. We find ourselves enticed by that. Drawn into it. But Herod will promise you the world, but only wants something from you. Whereas Jesus demands your total surrender, but has sacrificed everything for you. That's the difference between King Herod and King Jesus. The difference is what the king is willing to pay for the redemption of his people. And Herod wasn't willing to pay anything. Herod wanted to take Jesus came to give who will reign on the throne of your heart this christmas we have an opportunity Southside, 
Not just to change Christmas for our families, but to change Christmas for our church, but to to send a message out to the world that it's Jesus who reigns, that it's Jesus whose birth we celebrate. And like the wise men from Matthew chapter 2, I pray that we will choose to hold our gifts back from King Herod and lavishly pour them at the feet of King Jesus. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. We're going to sing that song that Scott led earlier, Humble King. What a beautiful reminder today of the king that we've committed our lives to worship. And maybe today you're here and you would say that uh, you have spent a whole lot more time worshiping at the throne of Herod than you have at the throne of King Jesus. The beautiful thing about the invitation of Jesus is that it stands. It has stood down through the ages and down through the centuries. And Jesus, the humble king, still waits for wise men to come and to worship at his throne. But don't get me wrong, it's not just about the worship that will take place in this room as we sing, as we give our money in the offering plate. That's almost easy. It really is about who you will worship when you walk out of this place. How are you spending your time and your money this Christmas? How are you, what are you modeling for your children, your grandchildren? Are you teaching them the message of the gospel through the Christmas story? Or are you teaching them the gospel of consumerism? It matters. It matters, church. Those decisions that seem so irrelevant. Over the course of time, they paint a picture that the world looks at. What do they see when they look at us? Father God, we come before you today. And we're moved and we're stirred by your humility that you would set aside the riches of heaven, the power, the authority that is all rightfully and only yours, and you would come down to earth and take the form of a baby, not born in a palace, but laid in a feeding trough in a barn, that you put yourself in the most vulnerable position imaginable so that we could relate to you. You put yourself into the kingdom of the empire. And Lord, it's a place where we live. We we live and, and sometimes it's so hard not to be overcome. But Lord, then we we read the story, your story in the gospels, and we see it can be done. That we can stand apart. We can show a better way of living, a way that's defined by grace and mercy, and not by debt and greed. So, Lord, may that define us who are Christians. And for those who are here today who are not Christians, and Father, maybe they've not even been aware that they've lived under the bondage of of the kingdom, but maybe today they hear the invitation of a humble peasant king who says, come follow me. Maybe today would be the day that they would kneel at the feet of Jesus and declare that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. We invite you, God, to move in this time, move in our hearts, move in your church. Reveal yourself, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.